Welcome to everyone here in the auditorium. Good morning in the venue. Trust you're having a good Sunday morning. Great Saturday. Chilly, cold, but a great Saturday. Rooting those Huskers on to a victory. That was fun. Great night tonight. Put your hands together for Celebration Sunday. Are you excited? I'm telling you, I'm so, so grateful that we do Celebration Sunday here at Carney E. Free, one service, one time a year, where we all come together. We have uh, each Sunday morning here, four services, also one on Sunday night with C20, so five, five services. We don't get a chance to be together as one entire church family very often, and it's an exciting and joyous night. I really hope you can make it. Great, great, great food. Wonderful baptism stories. We have 10 people about being baptized tonight. Really encourage you to plan on being here from 6 to 8 p.m. 6 to 7 will be dinner. 7 to 8 will be our Celebration Sunday service with worship and baptisms. And the close of that first chapter in our capital opportunity. Thank you uh, for planning on being here tonight. I think it will be a great, great time together. My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carney Free. If we haven't connected, love to connect with you after the service. We are uh, continuing our long, year-long sermon series, Tell God's Story, Our Story. And uh, we're coming into the home stretch, aren't we? In the last month or so. Um, I, I've uh, been asked, why so much time in the Old Testament and less time in the New Testament? Are you guys Old Testament people? No, we're not Old Testament people. We're, we're New Testament, New Covenant people, but we tend in church as New Covenant people to focus more on the New Testament, don't we? And that's good, that's, that's right. But it's been helpful for us in this series to look at some wide swaths of Scripture and the meta-narrative of Scripture with about eight months out of 12 in this series focused on the Old Testament. And now it feels like we're moving in warp speed as we go through the New Testament in far too few weeks. I realize that, that we are going through it really, really quickly. Like last week, if you weren't here, we looked at the birth of the church and the book of Acts in one Sunday. We made it to Acts chapter 2. It's kind of like a preacher's nightmare, okay? I, I know I could go a really, really long time in some of these messages, and some of you are probably disappointed that we're missing some really, really important passages. I hope you're keeping up well with the Bible reading as we go through each week, as that'll help us so, since we are skipping so many important passages. Um, but we are in this section of Scripture called the New Testament Letters, and it really is the home stretch. Here are a number of icons on the screen and on your handout that give you a sense of where we've been, at least in terms of the major movements that we've looked at in the New Testament. It begins, of course, well, with the incarnation of Christ, which we'll celebrate here at Christmas. We talked about that a couple months ago. And then it moves to community and the foundation of the inner 12. The community is the context for life change. And Jesus sends the disciples out on mission through a community starting well with 12. And then, of course, we have redemption that we talked about a number of weeks ago with the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ. And last Sunday, well, we talked about the birth of the church. And where we are today and for the next couple weeks is looking at a number of New Testament letters Really, that's the remainder of your Bible from where we are today. It goes from the Acts of the Apostles, which is the history of the church, the earliest church as it's getting founded, 
to a number of New Testament letters that are written by individuals to individual churches in specific localities in the Middle East and Asia and in the Mediterranean. And these are letters written by John, the Apostle John, and by the Apostle Peter, and by James and Jude, who are both half-brothers of Jesus, and uh, a number of other authors, but many of these letters are written by a man named Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament letters, or short books, that we have in this latter part of our Bible. And these 13 letters correspond to his four missionary journeys, which are all plotted in the book of Acts. So there's a little resource in the back of your outline, whether you're using the digital outline or a paper outline today. If you look on the back of that, you'll see Paul's four missionary journeys corresponding to the various letters that he wrote. So oftentimes people read the book of Acts and they say, wow, how does this situate itself with the different letters that Paul wrote? to various church leaders and to individual churches. So perhaps that can be of resource for you as you journey through Paul's various letters. These letters as a whole were written to strengthen us. They're written to teach us, to inform us, to give us lots and lots of personal application of how we are to live in Christ. They're very direct And so they can be easier to understand, except for when they're not. Uh, They're brilliant letters, both for theological teaching and for personal application. And if you've been in the Apostle Paul's letters at all, in his writings at all, you know that his typical pattern is is to do this. Spend a few chapters talking about theological ideas, giving strong theological education, That people like you and me are meant to understand. The Bible is meant to be understood by lay people like us. And so a few chapters like that, followed by a few chapters of personal application, this is what you do out of this theological teaching. Now we like the application, don't we? We like to go almost immediately to the doing. But where Paul spends a lot of his time, this is true for Peter and John as well, where they spend a lot of their time is... Being before doing. Say that with me. Being before doing. Okay, that's where we want to live. In receiving, in being with the Lord. Receiving from Him, knowing who He says we are, as we just sang about, before we go into doing. So we like talking about application, I do too, but today I want to talk about identity before activity, being before doing, focus on our receiving. And the way we'll focus on our receiving is going to one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible, at least in my opinion, Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 is in the midst of what many have called the Magna Carta of Paul's letters. Again, Paul wrote 13 letters the longest of which is the book of Romans, 16 chapters. And Romans is just so rich with theology and personal application and all kinds of instruction for church and family life. And we're just going to focus, for the most part, in Romans 8, have a couple other references along the way. But this is a chapter that is so rich to me, I preached a four-week series on it about a year and a half ago. Today we'll just get it for a single Sunday, but it's certainly worthy this week. 
of your meditation. Perhaps even memorization, if you dare. This is a chapter that I memorized a number of years ago. I'm not sure if I can state it from memory this morning. But it's worthy of your memorization. It's worthy of your meditation and study because it's so potent for the entirety of our lives as we understand a number of guarantees related to who Jesus says we are. Looking at God's story and our story and what God says about us is absolutely critical. Let's pick up here. I'm going to start with four verses, Romans 8, 14 to 17, and then we'll look at a number of other verses as we go. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear once again. Fear is a common experience of every person in this room. But Jesus would have us no longer be slaves to fear, but be children of God who need not live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His suffering, in order that we may also share in His glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this beautiful letter to Romans. We thank You for the Apostle Paul's bold witness, the way You changed his life from the inside out, when he was a violent persecutor of the church, you got a hold of him, you changed him, you introduced Jesus to him, and it made all the difference in his life. And he wants us to know the same, and we trust, Lord Jesus, that you want us to know the same today. Who we are in you, and the difference that that would make for our lives, the way we see ourselves, and how we begin to relate to others. Would you please teach us now from this beautiful chapter Romans 8. I don't know what my friends have brought in today in the auditorium and in the venue, but I ask that you would meet them right there with whatever heartaches or pains, whatever other priorities we have in our minds. Would you please come? We invite you, Holy Spirit, to meet us now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. You are our God, our rock, and our Redeemer, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's have just a little bit of audience participation as we get going here in Romans 8. Would you take out your wallet if it's handy? No, I won't ask you for any money. But as you're taking out your wallet, if it's handy, I don't see too many of you moving. Come on. I know they're moving over in the venue. Uh, take out your ID. Wave it up high if you have it convenient. Take out your ID. And take a little look at your ID if you have an ID. Perhaps it's a state of Nebraska driver's license. Perhaps it's some other kind of ID that you have with you. But you're taking a look at your ID right now for, for just a moment. And you notice on your ID a few different guarantees. This is a guarantee that you can still drive. This is a guarantee that I was born on such and such a date, which I will not share with you now. This is a guarantee that I am six feet tall and so many pounds. 
This is a guarantee that my eyes are green, that my hair is brown, that I live at such and such a location that I will not give to you. This is even a guarantee of some of my ends, some of my destiny. I'm not sure about yours, but in my ID, in the bottom right corner, there's something that says donor. Yes, or donor, no, has something to guarantee about your future as well. Okay, put away your ID now. I don't want you to lose it at church. I don't want any of those emails this week that you lost your ID. Put it away. This is a statement of sorts of a guarantee that speaks in a very simple two-inch by four-inch form to some things about your identity, isn't it? This morning I want to speak to some IDs, some guarantees for you from the book of Romans chapter 8. And here's the first. Identity. And your identity is this. We're going to look at IDS. Your identity is this. I am a beloved child of God through faith in Christ. Let's say this out loud together in both rooms. I am a beloved child of God through faith in Christ. I pray that you know that today. That is the, the cornerstone, the first mark of your identity. You are a beloved child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, where do most people today get their identity? Anyone? Where? From their job, I heard. Anywhere else? I heard family. I heard money. I heard heritage. Yeah, those are the different places, though, that we gain our identity today. And for the most part, we tend to worship at one or two different idols. Either the idol and the altar of success, or the idol and the altar of failure. Isn't that so? So, if we've been successful in our job, we feel a sense of identity from our job. If we've raised responsible, successful children, we feel a great sense of identity from that. If we have a good family heritage, if we went to college and did well, and on and on, if we've amassed some kind of wealth, some kind of status, we feel some kind of identity from those things. Conversely, many people feel like, I wanted to go to college, but I never did. I wanted to start a business, it never took off. I thought I would make some good money, but it didn't happen. I wanted my kids to be responsible, but they are not. I failed in this. I failed in that. I want to do the right thing, but I keep doing the wrong thing again and again. I have a failed marriage. I failed in my job. And that can become very easily. You know these folks, and so do I. You've probably been there, and so have I. Your identity. We tend to worship either at the altar of success or failure. Now, I'm grateful that the Apostle Paul gives us an example of this too. He experienced both of these poles. You look at the book of Philippians, for example, chapter 3, he notes that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. With respect to the law, he was faultless. That means he was morally upright. He was a leading rabbi of the day, trained by the greatest rabbis of the day, born into the leading families of the day, of the greatest tribe of Israel in that day. He was like a Kennedy, educated at Harvard, 
fluent in three languages, a brilliant professor and rabbi who had everything going for him. And he worshipped at that altar of success. But then elsewhere, for example, Romans chapter 7, which I'd really encourage you to read, right before you read Romans chapter 8, it says these words, I do not do what I want to do. And I end up doing the very things that I wish I wouldn't do. What a wretched man am I, Paul says of himself. So like he has it all together, and yet he realizes he blows it. He makes mistakes. He fails. And he looks in the mirror, and he recognizes when he fails again and again and again. By the way, that's a really good indication that you are actually a Christian, that you recognize when you fail and you repent of it quickly, that you look in the mirror and you deal with it. Well, anyway, back to the topic at hand. It, it, he recognizes this intensity of failure. And I'm so grateful for those words in Romans chapter 7 because I've been there. Have you been there? You just feel like, man, what wretched man that I am. If people really knew the real me. We see both of those from Paul. And yet what we see from Paul in Romans chapter 8 is this truth that whether you've succeeded or failed, your identity is way bigger than that. Your identity is based on this. You are a beloved child of God. Now the problem with gaining your identity, the problem with gaining my identity with what I do, from what I do, is it begins and ends with, with, with me, right? And the Bible says life is not about me or, or you. It's not about, and just think about it. Like if your identity begins or ends with what you succeed or fail in, I mean, how big are you on a cosmic scale? No offense. Yeah, happy Sunday to you. <laughs> like we're about this big on a cosmic scale. Even so, you matter greatly to God. You matter greatly to us, no question. But if our identity depends, if we are getting our sense of identity from what we do, then we're always going to be in this place of did I measure up or not? Did I do enough or not? Which leads us ultimately to comparison, which I'll say again is the thief of joy. Every time, comparison is the thief of joy. And when you're comparing yourself to others, ultimately what happens is either pride or self-hatred, both of which are very bad and Jesus wants neither of them for us. Instead, the way we want to think of our identity is this. We have a career, and it's very important. Make no mistake, it's very important. It will become part of our identity. We have family, and it's very, very important. And it will become part of our identity. But those should be a piece of the pie. Three quarters of the pie, if you will. Three quarters of the Thanksgiving pie, if you can think of your life that way, and where you get your sense of identity, should not come from what you do or your successes or your failures. It should ultimately come from what Jesus says about you. Look here with me. Let's do a little bit of theology together. Look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, There is now no condemnation. How much condemnation? There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Are you in Christ Jesus? There's no condemnation for you. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Speaking of the promises of God, there's a good one. Because through Christ Jesus, why is there no condemnation? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Like if we were still under the law of sin, if we were still under the Ten Commandments and the Old Covenant, we would all be condemned. But the law of the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit which now dwells in us, has set us free from that, from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do Because you and I were weakened by the flesh, and it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in our likeness, though he was without sin, so that he would become a sin offering for us and therefore be able to condemn sin in the flesh. This is what Jesus did. He came as sinless man, perfect to condemn our sin in the flesh, to fulfill the complete requirements of the law for you and me and anyone across the world who puts their trust in him, such that the law is no longer our judge, and such that God looks at us and he says, not condemned. This is the truth. And if you receive God's invitation to salvation and forgiveness of sins, God's spirit is now in you. It's now in you. You may not feel it today, but it is. If you've actually given your heart and your mind, your very self, over to Christ, I'm not talking about just saying the words. Come on. I'm not just talking about saying the words. That won't do it. It's saying who is on throne in your life? Who is reigning in your world? And if you've actually given the reign over your heart and mind, body and soul to Jesus, then he has set you free from the law of sin and death and the Holy Spirit actually dwells in you whether you feel it today or not. Now what's going to happen is over time as you're leaning into Jesus on a day in and day out basis and spending time, just a little bit of time in his word and a little bit of time in prayer, learning to dwell with him, learning to enjoy him, learning to listen to him, learning the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. As we do that day after day, what ends up happening is the old nature that Paul is talking about in Romans 7 begins to be suppressed. And it has less and less reign over your heart. And you're less and less inclined to the old sins and failures that used to grab you. And the new nature is like a new engine. It's like a Hemi V8 in you. And you're relying on Jesus more and more on a daily basis. And you're living more and more like him because the spirit is in you. And it's meant to be stronger than your old sin nature. And you say, well, how is that so, Adrian? That's not my experience. We'll look at verse 11. It says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Now, just consider that. This is incredible. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave now dwells in you if you've actually surrendered the reign over your life 
to Christ, that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that resurrected him dwells in you by faith in Christ. And slowly but surely, that same power is able to transform us so that we are less inclined to that old sinful nature and more inclined to the nature of the Spirit. This happens because the Spirit is in us and we have a new identity in Him. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are actually God's children. And friends, if you know this to be your identity, it strengthens you in a way that I'm not sure anything else can. To know that in spite of my greatest successes and my worst failures, I stand on Him. That strengthens me. Now, while we're doing a little theology here, let me uh, try to uh, help understand a common misconception. There's a common misconception that Jesus looks at us and he says to us, or God looks to us, God the Father looks to us, and when he sees Jesus on the cross, then he looks at us and he says, not guilty. That's not accurate. He looks at you and he says, you're guilty. But he looks at Jesus and he realized that Jesus took all of your guilt onto him, all of your sin onto him. And then after looking at Jesus, he looks back at you and he says, pardoned, not condemned. Yes, you are guilty of many things, just like I am. Yes, I am guilty, but I'm pardoned because of the blood of Christ. Not condemned because of the blood of Christ. And not just not condemned, also beloved because of the blood of Christ. And not just beloved, also adopted into the child, as a child into the family of God because of the blood of Christ. Adopted as a child of Yahweh. Like, come on. This is a good time to say amen, people. Do you believe this? I mean, if there's ever a time, do you believe your theology? Theology deserves an amen from time to time. I know men even in this room right now. You know, like career is a big thing for men. When a man loses his career, it cuts to the heart like almost nothing else. And I know men in this room, as well as many men that I've known in different stages of life, who have lost not just a job, they've lost their careers. And that cuts to the heart. But I'm telling you, there are men in this room and others that I have known who have learned that their identity is not mostly their career. And even as they have lost so much, they still have hope. They still have security. They still have a solid foundation because they know that the slice of their pie called identity in Christ is way bigger than the slice of that pie called their career. My friends, the most important thing about you is what God says about you. Not what you do. It's your identity and what God says about you. Our next guarantee, though, this morning from Romans chapter 8 is destiny. 
And our destiny is this, no suffering can compare with the splendor that will be ours in Jesus for all of eternity. No suffering can compare, no suffering will ultimately frustrate the splendor, the radiant joy, the glory that will be ours with God forever and ever. Now we need to stop and say this from time to time because the experience of suffering has a way of snowballing in all of our lives. You know what I mean? The experience of suffering can become so all-encompassing that we can start to awfulize about what things might turn into if things don't go my way. So I'll give you an example. You lose your job, and then a couple hours later, you're imagining yourself living on the street begging for food. Like suffering has that all-encompassing way of making us snowball and awfulize into the worst possible scenarios, doesn't it? It's that powerful. Or you may be a young person and your girlfriend broke up with you and you have this feeling in your mind that you're going to forever be relegated to complete loneliness and no one will ever be your friend again because you dated for two weeks. No, it won't work like that. There will be other people. And beyond other people, you have satisfaction in Christ if you truly lean into Christ, whether you have someone else as a forever mate or not. But suffering has that way of making us think that it will be our experience forever. What we want to do instead is remind ourselves that suffering is part and parcel of our journey through this world. We will suffer. Our kids will suffer. We need to brace them for suffering. Indeed, the, the Bible says here, verse 22, Romans 8, that the whole creation is suffering. We know that the whole creation, listen to this, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Ladies, is that a lot of pain? Moms? The whole creation has been groaning in that pain right up to the present time. What does that mean? It means our entire world is fallen because of sin. It isn't what it should be. So people are fallen. The world is fallen. The world is waiting. Even the earth itself is waiting for God to come back and renew it. And part of the teaching of the scriptures is God will not only give a resurrected body to you when Jesus returns in glory, but when that happens, he will also renew the heavens and the earth. He's not going to throw them in the trash. He's going to renew them, give a resurrection of sorts and a beauty to this, this really broken, painful world that we live in where there's forest fires and hurricanes and unemployment. And isn't it true what we just read? The whole creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. It's longing, but even there, there is security. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, do you share in Jesus' suffering? Anyone? Do you share in Jesus' suffering? You should. Have you been persecuted for Jesus in a real way? If you're serious about him, you will. That's what it's talking about. You'll have other suffering as well. And if indeed you share in his sufferings, did Jesus suffer? Quite obviously. He's saying, so then because you are an heir of God, so also you will suffer. Brace yourself. Get ready for it. It's coming to you. Again, happy Sunday. 
Okay, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his, in his glory. That's coming to you too. Okay? And this is what helps us hold on when we go through great pain in this world. As great as suffering is, as much as it has a way of calling everything into question for us, there is security in knowing that it is temporary. No matter how great your physical or emotional pain may be today, no matter how ugly it might be, what this passage is saying for us is that if it were weighed on a scale, like the heaviness of your suffering compared to the heaviness of future glory, your suffering would feel so light because future glory will be so heavy, so dense, so beautiful, so long-lasting. Do you meditate do you think on the glory that will be yours in heaven? Remember, our lives are just like a little dot on a very long line of eternity. Our three score and ten are very short. So I think of people who are brokenhearted. Meditate today on the promise that you will have glory with Christ forever. Think of people whose bodies are aching, who are in chronic pain. And I know there are many who are in chronic pain, and that is so difficult. And I do not make light of that, but part of the way people in this room get through chronic pain is remembering this won't last forever. Glory will be mine through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And on and on to meditate regularly. Christians of old used to do this all the time. To remind ourselves that there will be much suffering in this world, but the suffering does not define me forever, and I have a destiny where there will be none, an eternal weight of glory that cannot even be compared. It'll be so much more profound than the weight of suffering that I experience today, and so I can still be joyous regardless of circumstances. We have identity. We have this great destiny. And as a result, I want to suggest we have great security today. We have great security today that we stand on an immovable rock named Jesus. We stand on an immovable rock. We have a cornerstone of Jesus. Peter and James and John and Paul are all really consistent to say this, that we have an immovable rock, a cornerstone of Jesus. And in that cornerstone, we are secure. We know our future is secure. We know our identity is secure right now. And as a result, we know that we can get through today. And suffering need not define us forever. Criticism from other people need not weigh us down because we know what God says about us. We are secure. We are secure. Now even so, even in our security, here and now, living in the kingdom of God, sometimes we feel a little bit like this picture, don't we? Don't we sometimes feel a little bit like that? Like you're just kind of grasping, can I please get a hold somewhere? Can I please hold on to some little crevice where I can put my hands or some little rock where I can put my foot because I feel like I'm just dangling out here. And we all will have those experiences from time to time. There's no question. But I am convinced that as I go through those experiences, this has certainly been my process across many years of much suffering. I'll talk about my suffering much, but I've had plenty. 
And my process has been this. Go back to my prayer chair every day and dwell with God. Receive my sense of identity from him. Look up at heaven and the joy that will be mine. Remember what next step he has called me to do and do that and receive from him. And then take a choice psalm or a choice parable or a choice paragraph out of Romans 8 and meditate on it, cogitate it, dwell it. Allow it to get deep in your soul and then you find your rock once again. Now the sad thing is some people have to live like that. You look at that picture? There are people that you and I know who do not know Christ or have not taken the time to actually develop a real relationship with Christ and they live like that picture. Because when we don't have God, we are left with only our cleverness and our own strength, which does nothing for things like identity or destiny or security. But that's not us. We're the kind of people who have the faith to live in him on an immovable rock in such a way that we can say we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We can say by faith, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And my God is strong, and my God is loving, and my God is able, and my God is willing. And so I am going to stand on that rock and know that my identity is in him, that my destiny is forever glorious, that my security is on an immovable rock. Paul suffered more than we do. And then, in the midst of it all, he closes out this Magna Carta of chapters in almost hymnic praise by asking a number of different questions like, what should we say about all this? Who could possibly separate us from the love of God? Um, who can condemn us? If Christ Jesus died for us, who could ever condemn us? Who can stand against us? If God spared his own son, won't he do all things for us? And then verse 35, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of those things, whatever suffering might come, even if we were like sheep to be slaughtered, no, in all those things, we're more than conquerors. We're overcomers through Jesus Christ who loved us. For I am convinced that neither the highest mountain nor the deepest sea, neither angels nor demons, neither life nor death, neither powers nor principalities, nor any suffering, nor any rejection, nor any rebellion, nor any criticism, 
nor anything else in all of creation, nor any experience that you might be going through today is able to separate you from the love of God if you're actually in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for that. We're so grateful that our identity is secure in you. We are so, so thankful that as we take our cues from what you say about us rather than our successes or failures, we have the strength to move forward knowing that we are indeed children of God. We thank you, God, that all of your promises will stand, each and every one of them. And foremost among them is the promise that our destiny is secure in you. That if we belong to Jesus, you will be faithful for us even when we are faithless. You will be strong for us when we are weak. You will forgive us when we fail. And for that, we can know that we are secure during our short years here on earth. Please place us once again on the immovable rock of Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know if there's anyone in this room today who doesn't feel like their footing is secure. Maybe you feel like you're just dangling with a rope and you don't have enough cleverness to secure yourself. Maybe today would be the day that you simply turn to God. And I don't want to embarrass you, but you might do some quiet work with God right now as we respond in song. Just say to him, God, I need you in my life. I am not clever enough. I am not strong enough. I am not holy enough to equal your expectations for me. Would you please forgive me? Would you please come and reign over my life? And would you secure me for all of eternity? And if you mean that, I promise you his answer is yes, welcome, and amen.